0: I'm going to start up with a little science slide up here. J. Michael Bailey, uh, a, a professor of psychology at Northwestern, and Brian Mustansky, a professor, I think, also of psychology at Indiana University, have collectively done as much study into research of causation factors for homosexuality as anyone in the world. Bailey was responsible for three identical twin studies in the 1990s, which suggested to many people a concordance rate of 50% if one identical twin self-identified as non-heterosexual. 50% of the time the co-twin likewise self-identified. However, he had a little sample bias problem there. He recruited people for the study in gay publications that knew what he was doing. And then he was able later in 2000 to do a study with the Australian Twin Register. Australians apparently keep very good tabs of their twins. And there, the incidence was much lower, only something like 1 in 10. Only 1 in 10 occasions when identical twins self-identified as just as non-heterosexual at any level, 3 to 6 on Kinsey. Even with that very broad definition, still they could only get about 1 in 10 of the co-twins, likewise self-identifying, and those are raised in the same household. So, not what they expected. But at any rate, at least he has some honesty in admitting the sample bias in the earlier studies. And in an article for a therapist uh, in sexual and relation therapy, Ustansky and Bailey acknowledged this very important point. Despite common assertions to the contrary, evidence for biological causation of homosexuality does not have clear moral, legal, or policy consequences. And these persons are, they, they believe very strongly in affirming homosexual unions. So, to assume that it does have such consequences logically requires the belief that some behavior is non-biologically caused. We believe that this assumption is irrational because all behavioral differences will on some level be attributable to differences in brain structure and process. Thus, no clear conclusions about the morality of a behavior can be made from the mere fact of biological causation because all behavior is biologically caused. You catch that? All the arguments about are they born gay, not born gay, etc., irrelevant for moral decisions and policy making. Why? Because if you accepted innate urges as a basis for morality you would in the end have to accept everything. Because as they note at some level all behavior is biologically caused. So the issue of biological causation is a moral wash. It is irrelevant Here's a secret. Man, I'm gonna disclose it. You'll drum me out of the Men's Society because we, women, we took a blood oath about this. You may not have known about. Uh, and that is, men said, did we do that? Some men said, like, no, you, you did take that. And uh, that is that all men are essentially wired to be polysexual. That is, they do not experience particularly high psychic discomfort from having sex with drop-dead gorgeous women that happen not to be their wives. Here's a little kept secret. Now, they shouldn't do it, and we try not to do it. You know, I've talked it over with my wife. She said that would be a terminal condition. How so? I'd kill you. <laughs> so, she's just joking, of course, I think. I'm not quite sure. But <laughs> I digress. Uh, it, it is the case that men, it's much more difficult for men. They had, they had a, a, a study, worldwide study, done I think in 2003 or 4, federally funded, around the world, first world, third world, tribal societies, industrial societies, 10,000 people surveyed and they came to the astounding conclusion that it is a cross-cultural phenomenon that men find monogamy more difficult than women to which I say these are your tax dollars working hard for you. I don't know why they just didn't phone me up in my office, I'd have told them and they could have saved themselves a lot of time and money I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not only a cross-cultural phenomenon. in most cases, it's a cross-species phenomenon, as uh, nature textbooks have noted. So so what? Men find monogamy more difficult than women. They have 10 times the main sex hormone, testosterone than do women. They think more about sex than women do. They struggle more with sexual urges than women do. Uh, so what? If you said because we're born that way it should determine morality you've now endorsed for men polygamy or more specifically polygyny. We would go back to the situation in mosaic society in ancient Israel and around the world at that point in time. Okay, but we don't because it doesn't matter what innate urges you experience. That is not a morality argument. Most people on the drop of a dime could think of dozens of urges they do not ask to experience, but they do experience, but it does not thereby validate the impulse. All right? Who here has never felt anger, jealousy, envy, pride, covetousness? Nobody. Anyone want to extol those things as virtues? No, the fact that they're innate doesn't make them moral. And that's why Christianity has this image of the necessity of taking up one's cross, being crucified with Christ, and denying oneself, and losing one's life. Because it doesn't matter what your biological urges are. God is interested in remaking you in the image of Jesus Christ by any means necessary. And C.S. Lewis has a wonderful analogy here where Uh, you can kick and scream all you want, you know, if if God were a cosmic sadist, well, then maybe he would get his jollies at a certain point and leave us alone. But God is not a cosmic sadist. God is the cosmic surgeon, and he's not interested in mere cosmetic surgery. He's interested in deep tissue surgery, and that means by any means necessary, he will transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how much you complain That's what God's mission is for your life and that often occurs in times of deprivation and it often occurs in times of difficulty and it normally occurs in opposition to one's innate desires because we are innately oriented towards ourselves. That's the worst form of orientation. Self-orientation, not towards others and certainly not toward God and that's what God is trying to root out of us. We didn't ask to have those impulses, we simply do. So, if even scientists who are strong proponents of homosexual behavior says the issue of how, to what degree these desires are innate, biologically wired, genetically transmitted, transmitted because of an influx of uh, reduction of male hormones in the in the womb, uh, whatever it is, whatever the argument is, who cares? What does it matter? We are not just simply the sum total of our biological urges. Okay, we're not brute animals or beasts. We're human beings created in God's image. So this is certainly the, the notion that because I have these urges, that's, I'm born that way and that's what God wants me to do. That is pure paganism. But even pagans recognize it's also stupid. It's illogical and cannot be consistently applied. Okay, so let's just get a, to me, it does, I do think that there are some congenit- significant congenital influences for some homoerotic development, and that homoerotic urges can be very difficult to eradicate completely, certainly, uh, or even sometimes significantly. I certainly do, and we've seen examples here, and I've seen many examples in my lives of persons who have virtually or perhaps even totally eliminated such urges, but I do not think that is the norm. It's not the usual frequency. So what? Look at AA. Does AA say it's going to cure anyone of alcoholism? And tell them, in fact, probably we're not going to do that. Well, what's the point of AA? Management of the unwanted impulses. And there's some hope for reduction in their intensity over a period of time with appropriate treatment, and sometimes even without treatment. But complete eradication? Not likely. Now, I'm not, I just simply don't know what, I don't, nobody knows what the real possibility is, what kind of frequency levels we're talking about here for the elimination of same-sex attractions, with a certain amount of therapy done rightly over a certain period of time. We just don't know the answer to that question. But I think the evidence indicates it's not the majority so what? I became a Christian, and when I became a Christian, I retained most of my fleshly impulses, and perhaps all of them, but I gained something different, the Spirit of Jesus Christ enabling me to do what God wants me to do, and even unbelievers are not compelled to behave in certain ways just simply because they experience urges. So, you know, I have questions about the whole issue. I think the the evidence is not entirely in from scientific studies yet, but ultimately it doesn't matter. That's, my, that's just my personal point of view. Not everyone will agree with that on both sides. I think it's multifactorial. It can involve congenital influences, early childhood socialization factors. It can, uh, like for example, uh, parental relationship, peer development, it can involve macrocultural matters like the degree to which society promotes or does not promote the behavior in question. It can involve individual psychology and how an individual responds to st- certain external stimuli. Uh, it can involve uh, incremental choices that one makes in life, which may even be blind choices. One has no idea that choice A is going to lead to result Z down the line so how much each of these elements of the five or so that I mentioned here factor into any individual probably varies from individual to individual. It just ultimately doesn't matter. It's not a decisive moral consideration. Why do we disagree in the issue? We disagree in the church and elsewhere because but I'm talking primarily here about the church because of different hermeneutical scales. That, that is different interpretive priorities. Traditionally in the church, this is how we have prioritized determining what is right and what is wrong. Scripture is number one, head and shoulders over everything. Not even just one, like one in a series. It's way over everything else. Followed by philosophic reason, in this case would be a nature argument. You can see there's some similarities here to the Wesleyan quadrilateral, but I've altered it a bit. Scientific reason, we can throw in tradition along with scripture, but it doesn't say anything different on this issue, and to me secondary to scripture anyway. So. That's why I didn't bother mentioning it, but you could throw it in there. Scientific reason, distinguished from philosophic reason, that is evidence you get from observation, data, and experience. Now, in that order. Now, it's not because experience isn't important, it's because experience isn't self-interpreting. And You have an experience, but what are the lens that you use to interpret the experience as to whether the experience is good or bad? Well, it's going to be one of the three things above if you're a Christian, and particularly the first. Now what's happened in the church is we've inverted this in a new revisionist scale. Experience, which people think is self-interpreting, but is not, comes first. It's actually interpreted, but wrongly, by people, followed by scientific reason, followed by philosophic reason they use their own nature argument born that way. Not quite true. I would add to what I noted earlier that there is no scientific model that indicates a study that indicates biological determinism but we're simply talking about increased risk factors. It's not a deterministic mechanism like ethnicity. For example, both my parents were French. Voila! Look look what happened. All six of us turned out to be French ancestry. Isn't that amazing? What are the statistical odds of that happening? 100% as it turns out. And uh, then I met uh, my wife-to-be from the age of 13 on, and, and applied the slow drip method, which is not very creative, but eventually it does the job over about four years. And then she agreed to date me, which actually was an invitation to go to church. And I thought, is that a date? Wasn't really quite sure. I thought it was, apparently she didn't. But anyway, miscommunication here at the beginning. But uh, over time then, I, uh, in an effort to convince her I was a Christian, because otherwise her parents might have broken off the relationship, uh, I I began reading scripture to convince her that I was a Christian, even though I wasn't. This is why I intend, when my daughters become dating age, to join the National Rifle Association and introduce them to my new gun collection before they go out for a date. Why do you have submachine guns, Dr. Gagdon? No special reason. Have a good time tonight. This is great. You should go online. Application to date my daughter. Please allow three to five years for processing of application. If you think of the following body parts when you think of my daughter proceed at a zigzag direction away from the house. <laughs> if you return my daughter after a certain hour at night, my agent orange kicks in, I wear fatigues and you'll see me at the window fully armed. Uh so anyway, uh I like that. It's just, you know, of course I'm not going to do all that. I mean, just put him in a Just put them in a convent. Why, you know, why why worry about it? No, I'm just kidding, obviously kidding. Right. Exactly. So uh, anyway, my point being, what was my point? Yes, well, uh, eventually it comes around. You see you're 52 and, you know, it's in the queue. It all comes down eventually. Uh, so I, I said, you know, to my wife-to-be, one thing you lack, French. Now, she was Jamaican, uh, African descent, a quarter Chinese descent, some English, some Irish, but of course you lack this critical element. So she bought it, and here we are married today, and our children are veritable United Nations, but they're the product of what their parents are and always will be. That's that's biological determinism. Okay, that is not what you have in the case of homosexual impulses even though there may be congenital influences. So, philosophic reason followed by scripture dead last. Really, to put it dead last means it's nowhere. And so it's like playing a card game and we disagree about what the priority of the Trumps are. One team says, well I think the Trumps are spades, clubs, diamonds, hearts, and that order. The other team says, no, we disagree. We think it's hearts, diamonds, clubs, spades. Invert it. Now try to play the game. You can't play it. You don't agree about what the priorities are, let alone how to interpret the individual elements. And that's why the church is fracturing and why this issue extends simply beyond itself, localized self, to something much broader about how we interpret. What is the debate about? It's about a core value in scripture's sexual ethics. This satisfies all the elements of what could constitute a core value. It's pervasively held in scripture even when not explicitly mentioned because as we noted, every text in scripture of any genre that has anything to do with sexual relations always presumes a male-female prerequisite, whether it's narrative, laws, proverbs, poetry, exhortations, metaphor, whatever it is, it's pervasive. To ask any Jew, You think we might be able to engage in same-sex intercourse if it's committed? And expect that you're going to get a yes answer. Really, if you think that's the case, you don't know ancient history. There's no evidence for that viewpoint whatsoever and all the evidence is contrary to it. It's absolute in its opposition. No exceptions are ever given. It's strong in its opposition. It's regarded as a particularly severe sexual offense. It's countercultural in its opposition. That is, we know of no culture in the ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman Mediterranean basin more pervasively and strongly opposed to homosexual practice than ancient Israel, early Judaism, and early Christianity. None. So now I want you to note here, I didn't just say very, 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 very bad. I said different elements, each of these, different characteristics, the degree to which it's carried throughout the canon of Scripture the degree to which it's absolute or conditional, the degree to which it's strong or weakly opposed, the, condition, the degree to which it is simply picking up on what prevailing cultural mores are or opposing them. When you get all four of those in sync, it's really not very hard to figure out that in the view of the writers of scripture, this is a core value in ethics. This is not a minor issue. As we talked about in Jesus' view, it's foundational. More foundational than even monogamy and rules against incest, because it's right at the heart of creation. Right at the beginning of creation, first differentiation male and female. Not kinship, but male and female. That's at the beginning, and that's why Jesus predicates his view on marital monogamy on this foundation, which makes it more significant than anything built on the foundation. That's what our Lord thinks, anyway and scripture from Genesis on. Homosexual practice is at its root a dishonoring of the integrity of the sexual self. That is why Paul uses specifically the language of dishonor. It degrades the person that God has intended us to be by in effect treating our gender as male or female as only half intact, needing structural supplementation through sexual intercourse with a person of the same sex. Now, we shouldn't belittle this impulse because lots of us feel at different points in life some degree of insecurity about our gender. And so people are, as we noted earlier, in need of structural affirmation of that gender, some more than others. Given upbringing, given congenital influences, somebody may be predisposed to have certain impulses or behaviors that society types as non-conforming to a male or to a female. And that can increase the sense of distancing in life with persons of the same sex, and if not corrected in some way, could become a higher risk factor for wanting to overcome that deficit by uniting sexually with somebody of the same sex and getting those needs for affirmation met sexually but that only regularizes the misperception that one is not wholly male or female. So it therefore just simply keeps going, the self-dishonorment. This is really not about counterfeit love, but true love, which sometimes means saying things which may be perceived by others to be hard, but it is in the best interest of the one to whom it is said. But it has to be said in the right way. And every parent knows this. No good parent, could possibly think that love means always permitting everything your child wants. That's a definition of a bad parent. A loving parent knows to be discriminating between what will be healthy and helpful for our child and what is not. And even I, who have surely the best children in the world, my two daughters, Karis and Eliana. I know you think that about your own children, but you're self-deceived, so we'll let it go. <laughs> and, of course, I am too. Now, but they are very, very sweet girls. I mean, they are super sweet if you met them. Oh, they're unbelievable. But even they, I have seen evidence of sin and self-orientation in their life. Can you believe it? Not as much as my wife does, but I still see it. I think the way, that's the way it works, that same-sex parents are more on to what their children are doing than the other sex parent, for whatever reason. At least I found that to be the case. We've already talked about the context for Love Your Neighbor, and here's a quote from Augustine which is very helpful because it was once used against me by a scholar who wrote a review of my book in, in um, Christian Century, very nasty review, I should say, which misquoted me misstated my positions, name called, everything. It was unbelievable. Written by a scholar who previously had bemoaned the lack of civility on this issue. So I guess he meant until somebody comes out with a book like Gagnon's, I suppose. Anyway, he says, if Gagnon only believed what Augustine's Augustine's dictum, love and do what you want, uh, then we would be fine. He would be fine. and would come to the same view I do. Well, I'm not a patristic scholar, but I know there's no way that any patristic uh, author, any church father could be made serviceable to the homosexualist agenda. So, I simply looked it up to the Gare quad The context is, uh, a father disciplines rigorously his child, while a boy stealer caresses a boy, which one loves. Well, that's an interesting way of framing it, isn't it? If you just saw two men, one hugging a child and the other hitting a child, you would presume the one hugging is loving. But then when you get more information that the discipline in one case by uh, appropriately in a controlled manner by a father to his son, and in the other case it's a pederast who's sexually attracted to a boy, and that's why he's hugging him. Well now you have a whole different can of worms, don't you? Your interpretation of what love means has now changed because you have more truth more information at your disposal about what actually is happening. So Augustine adds, if any of you perhaps wish to maintain love, brethren, above all things, do not imagine love to be an abject and sluggish thing, nor that love is to be preserved by a sort of gentleness, nay, not gentleness, but tameness and listlessness. It's laziness. You just don't want to do the hard work of reclaiming somebody for the kingdom. Do not imagine that you love your son when you do not give him discipline, or that you then love your neighbor when you do not rebuke him. This is not love, but mere feebleness. Let love be fervent to correct, to amend. Love not in, this is the great line, memorize this one. Love not in the person his error, but the person. For the person God made, the error the person himself made. Beautiful. I thank the scholar, Walter Wink. I thank him ever since for having supplied me with the quote and the context, which is exactly what I wish I had thought of. Beautifully said, love not in the person his error, but the person. The error the person made, God made the person. Okay? You have to make that distinction in life. If you don't, you don't know how to love. As I said, every parent knows that. So, in context, love and do what you want means you can even implement discipline in love as a means to turning someone away from sin. Exactly the opposite of the way Wink was using it. 180 degrees, opposite. Why context is important. What's this all about? About the meaning of change in God's kingdom. Doesn't matter whether anyone loses same-sex attractions or not. They're still bound to obey God's commands. Change is total, it's taking up one's cross, losing one's life, and denying oneself. It's death to an old humanity and the creation of a new humanity in Christ. That's expected of every believer, no pass, no exemption for anything. We already noted about the cutting off statement. Uh, The question is here really whether God's ethics trump our deep-seated impulses or whether God's ethics have to be refashioned in accord with our impulses. Who's God in other words here, right? We or God. God has the right to require us of us things that run against our innate urges, because there is such a thing as a fall. The greatest change that actually takes place is not, let's say, I mean you might think, most people would think naturally that the greatest change would be, well, somebody has same-sex attractions, and then by some miracle, they no longer have same-sex attractions. That's not the greatest example of change. The greatest example of change is when the same-sex attractions remain and the person obeys God. It's no particularly great feat to obey God when you have no predisposing impulse to do otherwise. Real power, according to scripture, takes place when In spite of the persistence of such impulses, you obey God. That's change. So when I hear people mocking that as not real change, that is actually antithetical to any Christian worldview. That's power. Do you think Paul liked getting up in the morning and facing the fact that he could be stoned, and I don't mean drugs here, could be beaten up en route to a place, not even sure in the gospel, just gets beaten up by robbers because he's traveling on the roads a lot. Thanks very much for that, Lord. What was the purpose in that? Shipwrecked, poorly clothed, poorly sheltered, poorly fed, beaten by rods by secular authorities, whipped or scourged, one lash minus 40 uh, in the synagogue because, of course, you know the, the limitation is 40 in Deuteronomy, so you don't want to go over that, so you do 39 to make sure you don't go. Thanks for withholding the one lash. I appreciate that. Poorly clothed, poorly sheltered, poorly fed, and constant anxiety for all his churches, opposed even by fellow Christians. And this is his normal day. The Greatest power ever exerted, short of anything in the life of Jesus, is Paul simply getting up in the morning and sharing the gospel again under all these circumstances of deprivation and difficulty. You think he liked it? You think he's a, a masochist? No, but that was power. That was power. I should say, parenthetically, that no commandment of God is predicated on people first needing to lose all desires to violate the command in question. That's the reason the command is in place, because people have desires to do otherwise. I don't tell my daughters, who are currently 9 and 13, uh, you know, girls, really, heroin's a very bad thing, and give them a whole speech about that, and drugs and everything else. I mean, they would say, what do you mean, cough syrup? What are you talking about? They have no temptation to do that at this point, so it would be foolish for me to spend any time talking about it. Uh, the reason the commands we do give them have to do with, well, you don't hit one another, okay? Because that comes up from time to time as an issue. The things that we actually actually might be willing to do, those are the things that we need commands for. What are the best analogies to the Bible's prohibition of homosexual practice? Uh, some people think Gentile inclusion, I'll go to the next slide for that and come back here. The issue in, in uh, Acts, 5, Acts uh, 10 through 15 is Gentiles are included into the household of faith without having to be circumcised or obey the dietary commands. And the argument is since that's the case because it was shown that the spirit could operate in their life in spite of those not doing those things, so too is the issue of homosexual practice. If we can see the spirit in somebody's life, that proves that the homosexual practice is okay. Now, this is a bad analog for a number of reasons. and remember, analogical reasoning depends on drawing closest analogies. That is the things that share the most substantive correspondences with the thing being compared. This one has loads of differences. I put inclusion of Gentiles element on the left, affirmation of homosexual behavior on the right. In the case of inclusion of Gentiles, the Bible does not ground circumcision or even food laws in creation. However, the Bible does ground a two sexes prerequisite in creation, as we've already noted. Circumcision is viewed as a Jewish ritual prescription enjoined only on proselytes and affecting the body superficially. Totally different from the issue of homosexual behavior, which is a universal moral proscription, which are more basic still in the ethical chain, enjoined not just on proselytes, but all Gentiles. And it's widely held in scripture that sex affects the body holistically, not superficially. So what's the link there, none. Gentile inclusion is about what the issue is, ethnicity, uh, in the case of Acts 10 to 15. It's about welcoming persons. But homosexual practice is about accepting behaviors. In scripture, being a Gentile is only incidentally linked to sin. They did have the category of God-fearing or righteous Gentiles. You can actually see inscriptions in Turkey, as I did when I went some years ago, noting this existence of such persons. But in scripture, homosexual practice is intrinsically linked to sin, not incidentally. Gentile inclusion is significant Old Testament precedent, from Ruth to Rahab to Jonah, etc., light to the nations and the Isianic corpus, and so on and uniform New Testament support. As regards homosexual practice, total rejection in both Testaments. No exceptions. Being a Gentile is about ethnicity. Think about what that's like. 100% heritable, absolutely immutable, primarily non-behavioral, and thus inherently benign. Think about what homosexual impulse is like. It's not 100% heritable, or genetically traceable, or chromosomally traceable. doesn't mean there aren't influences biologically. I've already acknowledged the existence of that, but that's different from 100% heritability, like eye color or ethnicity. It's open to some change, sometimes even without any therapeutic intervention. Even the Kinsey Institute has acknowledged that. Seventy-five percent of those who identify at some level in the Kinsey spectrum to be homosexual will experience, according to the Kinsey Institute, at least one shift on the Kinsey spectrum over the course of life, and fifty percent, two shifts. That's with or without therapeutic intervention. That's that's not like ethnicity. I can't become more or less French, okay? That's not even possible. And it's an impulse to do something, meaning it's behaviorally oriented, unlike ethnicity. Therefore, it is not benign because it is a desire to engage in intercourse with somebody who is not a gender complement to oneself. Which is why we get the disproportionately high rates of measurable harm. The extremes of a given sex are not moderated and the gaps are not filled. So, only if you disregarded all these differences could you call this any kind of a good analogy. Clearly the differences are decisive. It is a bad analog. So let's go back to the other ones. Slavery. There's no vested interest in scripture to preserving the institution of slavery. The most that can be said about it is that in a society that has no social welfare net, that's you know maybe the last thing you can sell to get food is yourself. That's it. That's about the best that can be said about it. There's rather a critical edge in scripture towards slavery. It insists that you're not to enslave fellow Israelites or treat other Israelites, rather, as slaves. There are mandatory release dates, seven years in Deuteronomy, the Jubilee year, in Leviticus. Kin have the right of redemption, delivering you, purchasing you out of slavery, any time they have the money, irrespective of what the master says. There are refuge places in Israel from which runaway slaves cannot be returned. And Israel is reminded that God redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. In the New Testament, Paul does virtually everything to remind Philemon that Onesimus should no longer be treated, no longer be a slave to him, but a beloved brother in the faith. Short of dishonoring Philemon, he wants him to reach this conclusion himself, but he pulls out all the stops to get there. And when Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you can become free, by all the means, do so. But redouble your efforts to be a slave of Jesus Christ, because what really matters is, who or what you are enslaved to. You can be free, but be a slave as regards moral purpose. And relative to what we have in the ancient Near East and the Greco-Roman milieu, it's pretty liberating what we have in ancient Israel and early Judaism and early Christianity. Early Christianity actually at the beginning adopted practices where fellow Christians would sell themselves in slavery to release others in a purely selfless act. Slavery, where is the analogy then? I mean, there is a vested interest in preserving a male-female prerequisite in Scripture, so it's totally different from the question of slavery. You want to see where the analogy is, the analogy between the two is, slavery is an enslavement to impulses, and that's what those who are promoting homosexual practice are trying to do in the church. enslave people to their impulses. So the analogy is wrongly placed. Women in ministry. Many have used that argument. We've learned now women should be liberated and they didn't know that in the ancient world and uh, and so therefore now the same thing with regard to homosexual practice. Problem is it just doesn't work. Again, it's an analogy. It confuses categories. Being a woman is 100% chromosomally determined. It's absolutely immutable and it's not a direct desire for prohibited behavior. Think back to our comparison with ethnicity and homosexual impulses. Doesn't fit these categories. There is, moreover, a very positive view in many places of scripture in women from the Old Testament, um, from the prophetess uh, Deborah to uh, the uh, prophetess Ju- uh, Judge Deborah, prophetess Hulda, uh, the role of Ruth, on and on. Uh, the equalizing of release, slave release laws for both women and men in Deuteronomy. In New Testament, Paul has loads of women co-workers. For example, he salutes in Romans 16 and Philippians He tells two women, Yodia and Sutuke, not to stop being leaders in the church, but to stop arguing. Uh, The prohibition about the uh, the, uh, wife's subordination to her husband is traced to the fall in Genesis three. On and on we could go. Relative to the prevailing cultures, Scripture's view about women is counterculturally liberating. Relative to the views of other cultures with regard to homosexual practice, the views of Israel and the church are far more stringent. Works in the opposite direction. Divorce and remarriage, that's the closest analog by those on the left who try to promote some removal of a prohibition of homosexual practice, but still far afield. For one, it's not as severe an issue as homosexual practice. Uh, this is clear because genus himself predicates his view on divorce remarriage on a male-female prerequisite. So violating the foundation is obviously more severe. Moreover, there's no virtue to being more disobedient to the will of God. Some people almost talk as if there is. Well, if you're going to be consistent, let's be more consistently disobedient. I don't get that point. There is limited canonical diversity on the questions of divorce, certainly in the, New, in the Old Testament, which allows it, and even the New Testament under certain circumstances if a partner has committed adultery or is an unbeliever who wants to leave. There are also special perpetrator versus victim categories that could attend issues of divorce and remarriage, like abuse in marriage, etc., which simply doesn't apply to the question of a consensual entrance into a homosexual union. These are all factors that distinguish the issue of divorce and remarriage uh, from the issue of homosexual practice. But we are, they are alike in this sense. The work of the church is to end the cycle, So if somebody's been divorced, if somebody comes before an ordaining board and says, I've been divorced and remarried about uh, 10 times, and I'd like to continue that cycle with the fewest negative side effects, you will not be ordained, not even in the Unitarian Universalist Church, I think. Okay? And I'm not trying to be facetious there, I don't really know for certain, but I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't be even there, and certainly not anywhere else. Why? Because you have an unreformed mind. You intend to continue the cycle. The point is to end the cycle. So if you are divorced and remarried for whatever reason, now make that remarriage your last. And live that out in faithfulness and lifelong fidelity. So... We're asking for something totally different than the church here. We're asking for people who not only engaged in homosexual practice in the past, however many number of times, but who also want to continue it as a cycle. It's totally different from the question of divorce remarriage. So these are not good analogs. What then would be a good analog? We've already noted the principle here. Honest analogical reasoning does not eschew closer analogies in favor of more distant ones, obviously. To do so is to be dishonest in your analogical reasoning. The closest analog would be the other strongly prescribed sexual offenses in Scripture, especially those capable of manifesting love and commitment. That would include incest between adults. I'm not talking about intergenerational incest. I'm talking about adult consensual incest, of which there are cases, including people who have been put in prison for it. In Ohio, I know of a case. I know of a case in Europe. that's being discussed by the European High Court. What's the problem with incest? Sometimes go to a cocktail party and say, why not have sex with your mother? I'm sure you'll stop conversation in its track immediately. And people will fall all over themselves to try to explain why it is. My first explanation would be, because she's your mother. (laughs) In other words, if I have to explain it to you, we already have a problem. There are such irreducible minimums of human sexual ethics that don't need extended elaboration. Okay? And if you don't know it, there's a problem. Okay? But what people would most likely say is, well, the procreation difficulties that arise out of incest. To which I would then respond, what happens if it's a same-sex incestuous union where procreation is not possible? Or what happens if one of the other partner uh, is infertile? Past menopause or infertile for any other reason? Or what happens if they take active birth control measures? Would you then be forced such an incestuous union? I would hope the answer to that is no, but that means if you would prescribe it even where cases of procreation don't occur, then procreation isn't the main problem. It's only the symptom of the root problem. And what is the root problem? Why is it that you have higher incidences of procreative difficulties of birth defects and incestuous unions? Too much genetic similarity works itself out in the procreation difficulties. What's the root problem? Someone who is too much of a formal or structural same here on a kinship level. Isn't that the issue with homosexual practice? Somebody who is too much of a formal or structural like, now on the level of gender, which factors much more prominently in sexual issues than do kinship. Because at least incestuous couple is capable naturally of producing children. Has a higher rate of birth defects, but at least they can produce children, and it's not an absolute rate of birth defects. Homosexual unions can't even produce children, which indicates they're that much closer in identity, they can't even do anything, there's no, there's no complementarity on the level of physiology there. The, the sameness is even more keenly felt, but the root problem is essentially the same. Now, if you, you could have an example of a two, bro, two brothers, or a brother and a sister, or a parent and adult child being in a consensual incestuous relationship, they're committed to each other, they want it to be lifelong, they want it to be enduring, What's your argument against it? And suppose they add, we try not to have children. You have no argument unless you make the argument that there's too much formal or structural identity among the participants, which comes out in these disproportionately high rates of measurable problems. Polysexuality, multiple sexual partners, sexuality for more than one concurrent partner, violates the principle of two-ness, as we already noted in talking about Jesus to the twoness of the sexes, male and female, on which the limitation of the number of persons in a sexual union is based. Otherwise, what's your argument against a committed polyamorous union between three or more adults who are consenting, committing, and loving to each other? Oprah Winfrey on her show, once she had good polygamy and bad polygamy, she had intergenerational polygamy, that's bad polygamy, but then she interviewed four women who were all married to millionaires, different men, uh, in uh, Arizona, and uh, we're all intelligent, and we are typical soccer moms, uh, and we're very articulate, and they all said, it's our choice, and we want to do this. For us, we see it as beneficial. So what does Oprah conclude at the end? I thought all polygamy was bad. Now I've learned it just depends on how well it's done. But she's right, based on her principles that she applies to the issue of homosexual practice, where formal or structural correspondences are not needed. The only logical, creation-based, nature-based principle on which you could reject an adult-committed, consensual, polyamorous union is that there's a natural self-contained two-ness to to the union, given the two-ness or the dimorphic quality of the sexes. When you bring together male and female, you close the sexual spectrum. A third party becomes neither necessary nor desirable. Tell me that, that those two are not closer analogs than the other four that I already mentioned. They clearly are. There's are sexually prescribed offenses in scripture that can be conducted by adults in committed consensual unions, and they actually are analogically or foundationally related to the prescription of homosexual unions, or inversely stated, a male-female prerequisite. They're clearly closer analogs. So I wrote about this when I did the Two Views book on homosexuality with Dan Ovaya, who's a New Testament scholar, a Virginian, Episcopalian, and uh, he just decided then not to use analogies to make his case because he knew after I made it, he didn't have a case. I said, well, it doesn't affect me because I just don't use analogies. Well you can't really get away with that because you're arguing, I said, for a radical departure from scripture, you have to have some good analogy for doing so. But he just gave up the battle completely because he could see there's no arguing against this. They're clearly the closer analogs. So when people eschew these analogs, to the Paul adult committed, polyamory and incest in favor of slavery, which is a terrible analog, or women's roles, or divorce, remarriage, or the Gentile inclusion, all of which don't work and have far more points of substantive disagreement, is because they're not interested in thinking analogically. They're just interested in arriving at an ideological result. So the argument is really not on their side when it comes to, and most people start to wither when the analogies are used. I love it. I say, bring it on. Let's talk about analogies, okay, because we could do another two hours on this. This is just scratching the surface here. I'm just giving a little outline here, okay? And it's like this for every issue. So what is the problem with homosexual practice? The problem is conceiving a sexual same as a sexual other. A sexual complement to oneself, that is sexual self-deception. Because a person of the same sex is not a sexual other but sex by its very nature, because we're not holistic in our sexuality, requires a complementary other, and that is not a person of the same sex. But a person may perceive themselves as be lacking in maleness, if male, or femaleness, if female, because of lack of affirmation or other predisposing risk factors, but they're not in need of that supplementation. That's the deception. Treating one's maleness or femaleness, in effect as we already noted, is half intact. That's sexual dishonor, as we already noted. In heterosexual union, the two halves of the sexual spectrum unite to form a single sexual whole. By analogy, in a homosexual union, the logic is that of two half-males uniting to form a single male, or two half-males uniting to form a single whole female. Doesn't look too good. In addition to sexual self-deception and sexual dishonor is sexual narcissism. What is homosexual practice? It's experiencing arousal for the distinctive features of one's own sex. Males for maleness, females for femaleness. Why should I be aroused by maleness? I am a male. That's something odd in a tragic way because it suggests a distancing from one's own gender leading to an arousal or desire for what one perceives as exotic or different from oneself. You can even get a homosexual psychologist, Daryl Bem, who makes a similar point, although he didn't quite cast it in that nomenclature. He uses the exotic becomes erotic theory. It's from Cornell. And finally, sexual harm. Failing to moderate the extremes of a given sex or to fill in the gaps owing to the absence of a true sexual complement, increase the risk for measurable harm in a whole host of areas that we've already talked about last night. For men in particular, sexually transmitted effect infection and multiple partners over the course of life, because men are men. And for women, lower longevity on average in the relationships because of the high extraordinary demand that women place on the relationships for meeting needs of personal security and worth, which places great pressure on the relationship when two women are involved, and higher incidence of, 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 of uh, mental health issues, which in general women have more of than men, uh, just as a statistical fact, uh, but uh, it comes out even more because the relationship failure in these unions is very high. And with the investment put in them, it increases then the mental health issues that arise. So that really makes some sense as to why we don't really approve homosexual practice. What you have to use if you're using a secular argument, what we mentioned yesterday is a combination of a philosophical argument that we already used in looking at analogs in the case of incest and polyamory and the other issues that we mentioned here about self-deception, dishonor, and narcissism, which are absolute arguments, and on the other hand, couple it with a scientific argument, which, does, which is verifiable for, for statistically high measurable harm. Okay, I didn't get done nearly what I wanted to get done, but that was something. Now I'm just gonna have to rapidly summarize, and this will be a very rapid summary, so hold on to your seat. Okay, this is what, in general, I would do with Paul. Uh, If I had time, I would show you all the uh, elements for this. It normally takes about an hour to do so, so obviously I can't do that here. But people argue that uh, they didn't know about committed homosexual relationships in antiquity, and Paul was only indicting exploitative forms or promiscuous forms. That is between a master and a slave, uh, or between an adult and an adolescent, or with a boy prostitute. Problem with that argument? It's like about five or six arguments against it. Number one, Paul clearly echoes the creation text, both in Romans 1 and in the text in 1 Corinthians 6 9, there are like eight points of correspondence between Romans 1 23 to 27 and Genesis 126 to 127. Clearly echoing that text, especially 127, male and female he made them, which is why he doesn't talk about man and woman, but male and female in Romans 126 to 127. So Paul's not just looking at how well or badly homosexual practice is done in the ancient world but he's looking at the fact that it, of what it isn't. It doesn't correspond to God's will established in creation between male and female. That's one argument. Another is the nature argument. Uh, Paul uses the nature argument both against idolatry and against sexual immorality in Romans 1. His argument is that human beings not only sin, but they suppress the truth about God accessible to them. Even when they don't have scripture in front of them, uh, they can still know the will of God in a whole host of areas because the material structures of creation do not leave them without evidence. And so they should know that to worship idols in the image of humans or or animals clearly belittles the grandeur of the God who created the cosmos. And they should know likewise to engage with members of the same sex and to ignore the transparent complementarity, physiologically, anatomically, and psychologically between male and female, is a suppression of the truth about their own sexuality for which there is no excuse. That's his argument from nature. That's an inclusive argument that includes exploitative and non-exploitative patterns. Paul also emphasizes the mutuality in Romans 1 because he talks about males being inflamed with their desire for one another. He's not talking about coercive acts here quite explicitly. The indictment of lesbianism in Romans one twenty-six also establishes the case that the indictment is absolute because lesbianism in antiquity is not known for being particularly exploitative or promiscuous. Then, of course, there is the fact that there are loads of conceptions of carrying homoerotic unions in the ancient world, all the way from Plato on down. I could give you romance novels of the period of first century. I could mention to you Juvenal and Marshall, a satirist and epigrammatist, who referred to semi-official marriages between men going on in Rome. I can give you texts from a whole host of other Greco-Roman moralists and writers who talk about marriages in the ancient world between same sex. I can give you the text from Clement of Alexandria, a church father who reports about women marrying women in Egypt contrary to nature. Obviously, the fact that marrying each other indicates we're not talking about exploitative acts, but even so, he regards it as contrary to nature because it's not with a true sexual compliment. On and on we could go. I give you about a dozen examples. You can actually see it on my uh, website. You can see a link where I do give an hour presentation on the subject of the whole slideshow, everything else. If you can't find that, simply email me and I'll tell you where it is. So it's not really possible to argue anymore that they didn't know about committed homosexual relationships in the ancient world. So if you go to even somebody like, say, a homosexual man, Lewis Crompton, who's written a 500 page book called Homosexuality and Civilization, he's a gay man. How homophobic can he be at his conclusions here? Uh, this is Harvard University Press. According to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals in committed relationships. Such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of the period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. You can do the same thing with Bernadette Bruton. She's a lesbian. New Testament scholar, 500 page book, Love Between Women, published by University of Chicago Press. Same point. Paul is not only condemning exploitative forms of homosexual practice. He rejects it absolutely. These are the best scholars who identify themselves incidentally as homosexual but they acknowledge the point that is utterly obvious. Why don't you just quick more things about orientation. I could give you a whole discussion about orientation theory in antiquity. You've heard it said, well, we didn't know anything about congenital causation factors for homosexual development in the ancient world. Wrong. People who tell you that simply haven't read the evidence. The best scholars on the subject do say, oh yeah, the texts are there. If we had time, I would run through a number of them for you. But all we have time is simply to make a quote or two here. Uh, We could quote Bruton again on the same point, who acknowledges the existence of orientation, theory, in antiquity for masculinized women. Instead, I'll just simply quote Thomas K. Hubbard, who's written the – he's a classicist, so we know something about classics. He's written the definitive source book on homosexuality in Greece and Rome, published by University of California Press, 500 pages. He has – divides it all up into different periods of history, from ancient Greece through the Greco-Roman Imperial Age about 10 different segments. his has great introductions to each of them. He's an expert in the area. He is the expert in the area uh, among classicists. And he says, homosexuality in this era of the early imperial age of Rome may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasure and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity, exclusive of and antithetical to heterosexual orientation. Who are you going to believe? The people in the church? or elsewhere who tell you there's no such thing as anything akin to orientation theory in antiquity, or you're going to believe the classicist who's produced the foremost source book on the subject. Okay? All these alleged new knowledge arguments, which allow us allegedly to deviate from scripture, in fact, are not new knowledges. That's why whenever I have debated anybody in this case, and it has been increasingly hard over the years to find anybody anymore who will debate me, Uh, The only last two occasions was an Old Testament scholar from Chicago Theological Seminary who hadn't heard of me because he was from Germany, I guess. So poor guy, (laughs) poor fellow, you know, he came around and, you know, and that'll be the last time. We'll never, sadly, that event will never happen again. He, he got up, and he said they didn't know anything about committed homosexual relationships in antiquity. He didn't know anything about orientation theory in antiquity. Then I get up, and I give my whole little spiel about that. Of course, I had to reduce it. If you can imagine this, Pete, all to about an hour. I mean, come on. I mean, you're killing me. Can't you can't Im- I mean, I'm, I'm hyperventilating. You know, I'm talk fast, you know. But I got out enough. And he got up, and he just said, well, I still don't believe it. And that was it. That's what people did in the audience, even who supported him. They laughed because, what do you mean? You can't just say that. Produce the evidence. But he had none. And he couldn't refute the evidence. I mean, the texts are there. I mean, it's just because there are some exploitative relationships in the ancient world doesn't prove there aren't any committed ones, and I can produce the committed ones. Lots of evidence for that. And then what are you going to say? You can't say anything. It is there. So repeatedly, text whether it's analogies, whether it's the issue of the new knowledge arguments, whether it's the particular interpretations of Sodom, Levitical text, the creation text, the First Corinthians 6, 9 text, or the arsenokoitai or malakoi, which we didn't have much time to talk about. We could spend, spend plenty of time on that too. Almost any way to argue this issue, the evidence is not like I just draw one argument. It's like I throw out a truckload of arguments, any one of which would defeat the counterargument. Talk about the one that you said in the car yesterday. Did you? Oh yeah. Well, I, this was my classic example. I debated uh, David Bartlett, who had a PhD in New Testament. He was academic dean at Yale Divinity School. And I debated him at a South Carolina school. And the format was we each have a half hour, and then we'd have ten-minute rebuttals of each other and then open up to questions. Well, half hour, I thought. Again, you know, half hour. So I said, this guy's got to go first, because, you know, i got like 10 hours worth of material. So let me find out what this guy believes, and then I'll know where to target the material, because, you know, it's just too much. So, you know, he did the usual stuff, and, and then I got up in obviously overly short time, uh, but still got enough material out. And then, uh, that's, by the way, a secret to this issue. You know, when people have come to me at the seminary, sometimes they're in a course at the seminary in which you're supposed to argue a moral issue on a side that you don't normally believe in, whether abortion or homosexuality or something. So students who don't su- didn't support homosexual practice who were in the class came to me and say, what are the best arguments on the other side? Because I can argue those arguments better than the people on the other side. Mm-hmm. And my point to them was simply that, well, you really have no case, but, but here's the strategy, a tactical strategy that you can use, is simply throw out as many arguments as you possibly can and hope the other side doesn't have enough time to answer it. Because that's, the, that's your only hope. You give enough time, uh, and I've occasionally done all-day things, like I did one with Frederick Borsch, who's a New Testament scholar, who's also bishop of, of Los Angeles at the time, and we did a whole, thing, whole day thing in Mississippi in an Episcopal event. And uh, when he first saw me, he was looking at me very strange, and I go, wonder why he's looking at me so strange, and I walked in the room, and then he just, he, he let out, I, you know, I said to him, why are you looking at me like that, and he said, I thought you were taller, and I said, no, I just write tall, but <laughs> my personal presence is very unassuming, and that I share with Paul, I hope, but... Uh, uh, it was like a whole day. It was like beautiful. Wow, we got like almost unlimited time here And it was just like oh, one of the greatest experiences I've ever, I've ever had and by the end he had nothing It was just like a monologue at that point because like okay, he's out of material I'm just barely getting going now you know, one in the South Carolina So I, he did his spiel. I did my spiel then it was time for his rebuttal David Bartlett's rebuttal So he got up and this is what he said honest man. He said well to tell you the truth uh, It's not really about scripture for me anyway Boom, that was it. So he made his whole case from scripture that scripture does not oppose committed homosexual unions and then after I gave my little spiel, and that was only the half hour, imagine if I had three hours worth of time. I mean, the, basically the guy didn't want a second beating so he just said, you know, I mean verbal obviously, no, I'm not being ad hominem, it's just that the arguments are overwhelming. I'm civil and I don't insult anybody, but it's just, you know, lay out the arguments, okay, well, you know, what are you gonna do? He just kept repeating the remarks. So. This this is not integrity, this is not academic honesty, it's not academic rigor, it's not respectable, it's shameful. There is no case except that scripture is overwhelmingly opposed, this includes Jesus, the motive for opposing it arises out of love and it is in the best interest of those who are engaged, who want to engage in it and it's consistent with the whole approach to Christian ethics, which is to take up your cross, lose your life, Deny yourself, and come follow Jesus in every area of our life. Thank you.